Chapters one to three of Book Three of Toilers of the Sea, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part One, Sieur Clubin by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book Three, Durande and Deruchette. CHAPTER One: PRATTLE AND SMOKE The human body might well be regarded as a mere simulacrum, but it envelops our reality, it darkens our light, and broadens the shadow in which we live. The soul is the reality of our existence. Strictly speaking, the human visage is a mask. The true man is that which exists under what is called man. If that being, which thus exists sheltered and secreted behind that illusion which we call the flesh, could be approached, more than one strange revelation would be made. The vulgar error is to mistake the outward husk for the living spirit. Yonder maiden, for example, if we could see her as she really is, might she not figure as some bird of the air, a bird transmuted into a young maiden? What could be more exquisite? Picture it in your own home, and call it Deruchette. Delicious creature! One might be almost tempted to say, Good morning, Mademoiselle Goldfinch. The wings are invisible, but the chirping may still be heard. Sometimes, too, she pipes a clear, loud song. In her childlike prattle the creature is perhaps inferior, but in her song? How superior to humanity! When womanhood dawns, this angel flies away, but sometimes returns, bringing back a little one to a mother. Meanwhile, she who is one day to be a mother is for a long while a child. The girl becomes a maiden, fresh and joyous as the lark. Noting her movements, we feel as if it was good of her not to fly away. The dear familiar companion moves at her own sweet will about the house flits from branch to branch or rather from room to room goes to and fro approaches and retires plumes her wings or rather combs her hair and makes all kinds of gentle noises murmurings of unspeakable delight to certain ears she asks a question and is answered is asked something in return and chirps a reply it is delightful to chat with her when tired of serious talk for this creature carries with her something of a skyey element she is as it were a thread of gold interwoven with your sombre thoughts you feel almost grateful to her for her kindness in not making herself invisible when it would be so easy for her to be even impalpable for the beautiful is a necessary of life there is in this world no function more important than that of being charming the forest glade would be incomplete without the humming-bird to shed joy around to radiate happiness to cast light upon dark days to be the golden thread of our destiny and the very spirit of grace and harmony is this not to render a service does not beauty confer a benefit upon us even by the simple fact of being beautiful 
here and there we meet with one who possesses that fairy-like power of enchanting all about her sometimes she is ignorant herself of this magical influence which is however for that reason only the more perfect her presence lights up the home her approach is like a cheerful warmth she passes by and we are content she stays a while and we are happy to behold her is to live she is the aurora with a human face she has no need to do more than simply to be she makes an eden of the house paradise breathes from her and she communicates this delight to all without taking any greater trouble than that of existing beside them is it not a thing divine to have a smile which none know how has the power to lighten the weight of that enormous chain which all the living in common drag behind them Deruchette possessed this smile we may even say that this smile was Deruchette herself there is one thing which has more resemblance to ourselves than even our face and that is our expression but there is yet another thing which more resembles us than this and that is our smile deruchette smiling was simply deruchette there is something peculiarly attractive in the jersey and guernsey race the women particularly the young are remarkable for a pure and exquisite beauty their complexion is a combination of the saxon fairness with the proverbial ruddiness of the norman people rosy cheeks and blue eyes but the eyes want brilliancy the english training dulls them their liquid glances will be irresistible whenever the secret is found of giving them that depth which is the glory of the parisienne happily english women are not yet transformed into the parisian type Deruchette was not a Parisian, yet she was certainly not a Guernesiaise. Lethierry had brought her up to be neat and delicate and pretty, and so she was. Deruchette had, at times, an air of bewitching languor and a certain mischief in the eye, which was altogether involuntary. She scarcely knew, perhaps, the meaning of the word love, and yet not unwillingly ensnared those about her in the toils but all this in her was innocent she never thought of marrying deruchette had the prettiest little hands in the world and little feet to match them sweetness and goodness reigned throughout her person her family and fortune were her uncle mess lethierry her occupation was only to live her daily life her accomplishments were the knowledge of a few songs her intellectual gifts were summed up in her simple innocence she had the graceful repose of the west indian woman mingled at times with giddiness and vivacity with the teasing playfulness of a child yet with a dash of melancholy her dress was somewhat rustic and like that peculiar to her country elegant though not in accordance with the fashions of great cities for she wore flowers in her bonnet all the year round add to all this an open brow a neck supple and graceful chestnut hair a fair skin slightly freckled with exposure to the sun a mouth somewhat large but well defined and visited from time to time by a dangerous smile this was deruchette 
sometimes in the evening a little after sunset at the moment when the dusk of the sky mingles with the dusk of the sea and twilight invests the waves with a mysterious awe the people beheld entering the harbour of st sampson upon the dark rolling waters a strange undefined thing a monstrous form which puffed and blew a horrid machine which roared like a wild beast and smoked like a volcano a species of hydra foaming among the breakers and leaving behind it a dense cloud as it rushed on towards the town with a frightful beating of its fins and a throat belching forth flame this was durande Chapter Two: The Old Story of Utopia. A steamboat was a prodigious novelty in the waters of the Channel in eighteen twenty. The whole coast of Normandy was long strangely excited by it. Nowadays, ten or a dozen steam vessels crossing and recrossing within the bounds of the horizon scarcely attract a glance from loiterers on the shore at the most some persons whose interest or business it is to note such things will observe the indications in their smoke of whether they burn welsh or newcastle coal they pass and that is all welcome if coming home a pleasant passage if outward bound folks were less calm on the subject of these wonderful inventions in the first quarter of the present century and the new and strange machines and their long lines of smoke regarded with no good will by the channel islanders in that puritanical archipelago where the queen of england has been censured for violating the scriptures by using chloroform during her accouchement the first steam vessel which made its appearance received the name of the devil boat in the eyes of these worthy fishermen once catholics now calvinists but always bigots it seemed to be a portion of the infernal regions which had been somehow set afloat a local preacher selected for his discourse the question of whether man has the right to make fire and water work together when god has divided them this beast composed of iron and fire did it not resemble the shiathan was it not an attempt to bring chaos again into the universe this is not the only occasion on which the progress of civilization has been stigmatized as a return to chaos a mad notion a gross delusion an absurdity such was the verdict of the academy of sciences when consulted by napoleon on the subject of steamboats early in the present century the poor fishermen of st sampson may be excused for not being in scientific matters any wiser than the mathematicians of paris and in religious matters a little iron like guernsey is not bound to be more enlightened than a great continent like america in the year eighteen o seven when the first steamboat of fulton commanded by livingstone furnished with one of watt's engines sent from england and manoeuvred besides her ordinary crew by two frenchmen only andre michaud and another made her first voyage from new york to albany it happened that she set sail on the seventeenth of august 
The Methodists took up this important fact, and in numberless chapels preachers were heard calling down a malediction on the machine, and declaring that this number seventeen was no other than the total of the ten horns and seven heads of the beast of the apocalypse. In America, they invoked against the steamboats the beasts from the book of Revelations. In Europe, the reptile of the book of Genesis. This was the simple difference. The savants had rejected steamboats as impossible. The priests had anathematized them as impious. Science had condemned, and religion consigned them to perdition. Fulton was a new incarnation of Lucifer. The simple people on the coasts and in the villages were confirmed in their prejudice by the uneasiness which they felt at the outlandish sight. The religious view of steamboats may be summed up as follows. Water and fire were divorced at the creation. This divorce was enjoined by God himself. Man has no right to join what his maker has put asunder, to reunite what he has disunited. The peasant's view was simply, I don't like the look of this thing. No one but Mess Lethierry, perhaps, could have been found at that early period daring enough to dream of such an enterprise as the establishment of a steam vessel between Guernsey and San Malo. He, alone, as an independent thinker, was capable of conceiving such an idea, or, as a hardy mariner, of carrying it out. The French part of his nature probably conceived the idea. The English part supplied the energy to put it in execution. How and when this was, we are about to inform the reader. Chapter 3. Rantaine About forty years before the period of the commencement of our narrative, there stood in the suburbs of Paris, near the city wall, between the Fossil Lou and the Tombissoire, a house of doubtful reputation. It was a lonely, ruinous building, evidently a place for dark deeds on an occasion. Here lived, with his wife and child, a species of town bandit, a man who had been clerk to an attorney practising at the Châtelet. He figured somewhat later at the Assize Court. The name of this family, Rontaine. On a mahogany chest of drawers in the old house were two china cups, ornamented with flowers, on one of which appeared, in gilt letters, the words, A Souvenir of Friendship on the other a token of esteem the child lived in an atmosphere of vice in this miserable home the father and mother having belonged to the lower middle class the boy had learnt to read and they brought it up in a fashion the mother pale and almost in rags gave instruction as she called it, mechanically to the little one, heard it spell a few words to her, and interrupted the lesson to accompany her husband on some criminal expedition, or earn the wages of prostitution. Meanwhile, the book remained open on the table as she had left it, and the boy sat beside it, meditating in his way. The father and mother, detected one day in one of their criminal enterprises, suddenly vanished into that obscurity in which the penal laws envelop convicted malefactors. The child, too, disappeared. Lethierry, in his wanderings about the world, stumbled one day on an adventurer like himself, helped him out of some scrape, 
rendered him a kindly service, and was apparently repaid with gratitude. He took a fancy to the stranger, picked him up, and brought him to Guernsey, where, finding him intelligent in learning the duties of a sailor aboard a coasting vessel, he made him a companion. This stranger was the little Rontaine, now grown up to manhood. Rontaine, like Lethierry, had a bull neck, a large and powerful breadth of shoulders for carrying burdens, and loins like those of the Farnes Hercules. Lethierry and he had a remarkable similarity of appearance. Rontaine was the taller. People who saw their forms behind as they were walking side by side along the port exclaimed, "'There are two brothers!' on looking them in the face the effect was different all that was open in the countenance of lethierry was reserved and cautious in that of rontaine rontaine was an expert swordsman played on the harmonica could snuff a candle at twenty paces with a pistol-ball could strike a tremendous blow with the fist recite verses from voltaire's henriade and interpret dreams he knew by heart les tombeaux de saint-denis by treneuil he talked sometimes of having had relations with the sultan of calicut whom the portuguese call the zamorin if any one had seen the little memorandum-book which he carried about with him he would have found notes and jottings of this kind at lyons in a fissure of the wall of one of the cells in the prison of saint joseph a file he spoke always with a grave deliberation he called himself the son of a chevalier de saint louis his linen was of a miscellaneous kind and marked with different initials nobody was ever more tender than he was at the point of honour he fought and killed his man the mother of a pretty actress could not have an eye more watchful for an insult he might have stood for the personification of subtlety under an outer garb of enormous strength it was the power of his fist applied one day at a fair upon a cabeza de moro which had originally taken the fancy of lethierry no one in guernsey knew anything of his adventures they were of a chequered kind if the great theatre of destiny had a special wardrobe rontaine ought to have taken the dress of harlequin he had lived and had seen the world he had run through the gamut of possible trades and qualities had been a cook at madagascar trainer of birds at honolulu a religious journalist at the galapagos islands a poet at umrawuti a freeman at haiti in this latter character he had delivered at grand goave a funeral oration of which the local journals have preserved this fragment farewell then noble spirit in the azure vault of the heavens where thou wingest now thy flight thou wilt no doubt rejoin the good abbe leon de cramot of little goave tell him that thanks to ten years of glorious efforts thou hast completed the church of the ansa avo adieu transcendent genius model mason his Freemason's mask did not prevent him, as we see, wearing a little of the Roman Catholic. The former won to his side the men of progress, and the latter the men of order. He declared himself a white of pure caste, and hated the Negroes, though, for all that, he would certainly have been an admirer of the Emperor Suluk. In 1815, at Bordeaux, the glow of his royalist enthusiasm broke forth 
in the shape of a huge white feather in his cap. His life had been a series of eclipses, of appearances, disappearances, and reappearances. He was a sort of revolving light upon the coasts of Scampton. He knew a little Turkish. Instead of guillotined, would say, Neboise. He had been a slave in Tripoli, in the house of a Thaleb, and had learnt Turkish by dint of blows with a stick. His employment had been to stand at evenings at the doors of the mosque, there to read aloud to the faithful the Koran, inscribed upon slips of wood or pieces of camel leather. It is not improbable that he was a renegade. He was capable of everything, and something worse. He had a trick of laughing loud and knitting his brows at the same time. He used to say, in politics i esteem only men inaccessible to influences or i am for decency and good morals or the pyramid must be replaced upon its base his manner was rather cheerful and cordial than otherwise the expression of his mouth contradicted the sense of his words his nostrils had an odd way of distending themselves in the corners of his eyes he had a little network of wrinkles in which all sorts of dark thoughts seemed to meet together it was here alone that the secret of his physiognomy could be thoroughly studied his flat foot was a vulture's claw his skull was low at the top and large about the temples his ill-shapen ear bristled with hair seemed to say beware of speaking to the animal in this cave one fine day in guernsey rantaine was suddenly missing the serious partner had absconded leaving the treasury of their partnership empty in this treasury there was some money of rantaine's no doubt but there was also fifty thousand francs belonging to Letiri. by forty years of industry and probity as a coaster and ship carpenter Letiri had saved one hundred thousand francs rantaine robbed him of half the sum half ruined Letiri did not lose heart but began at once to think how to repair his misfortune a stout heart may be ruined in fortune but not in spirit it was just about that time that people began to talk of the new kind of boat to be moved by steam-engines Letiri conceived the idea of trying fulton's invention so much disputed about and by one of these fire-boats to connect the channel islands with the french coast he staked his all upon this idea he devoted to it the wreck of his savings accordingly six months after rantaine's flight the astonished people of st sampson beheld issuing from the port a vessel discharging huge volumes of smoke and looking like a ship afire at sea this was the first steam vessel to navigate the channel this vessel to which the people in their dislike and contempt for novelty immediately gave the nickname of letiris galley was announced as intended to maintain a constant communication between Guernsey and Sam Mallow. End of chapter three of book three. Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com.